Hi, my name is Curran Wadera. I'm the managing partner of Casa Verde Capital, and I am proud to work in cannabis because we're changing the world. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. I'm your host, Carson Humiston, and today I'm very, very excited because we have Curran Wadera, who is the managing partner at Casa Verde Capital. Also specifically excited for this episode because we just came out of our board meeting where Curran had the chance to ask me a lot of questions, and now I have the chance to ask him questions. So Curran, good to see you again. To kick us off, how did you decide that you wanted to start a venture capital fund in cannabis? Well, I did not know that, to be fair. I was leaving my job in Asia, where I was running the region for, for a big investment bank there on the trading side. And I was trying to think about what I was going to do next. And I'd always been a pretty active entrepreneur and investor myself, sort of as a side hustle along the way. And I decided that I was ready for something new. And I started exploring a lot of different areas of interest. And friends who have known for a long time, who then eventually became my partners, Snoop and, and his manager were starting to tell me, starting in 2015, about everything happening in cannabis. And they themselves had started a few ventures to attack what they thought was this amazing opportunity. And so it was through them that I learned about this amazing economy that was developing and all the opportunities within it. And Casa Verde as a, as a firm had existed at that time, but they really hadn't done a lot, had not raised any real significant money or, or made any real investments. And so it was sort of mine for the taking to really come in and, and grow this into what it became and, or has become today. So that's why, that's how sort of I got started. It was, it was through a, a path of exploration. And I probably dug in and around the cannabis space for about a, a full year before I finally committed myself to it full time. So you just casually dropped that one of the one of your friends and one of your business partners is Snoop. For those that mm -hmm. are not listening, or for those that are listening that may not know this, Casa Verde and and Curran, um, it's also Snoop's fund. So so can you talk to us a little bit about that? How how did you become friends with Snoop? What's Snoop's involvement in the fund? And I think people are always excited to hear about this. Sure. So when I was in college, I started my first company, which did new media consulting for record labels and artists, which is a fancy way of saying we help them build websites, their digital presence. This is early 2000s, pre-social media, pre, you know, a, a lot of the world like we know it today. And Snoop was one of the first people I ended up working with. And we did a lot together over the years, not just in music, but, you know, in some of his business ventures. And then even things like I, I brought him to India in 2008 to put him in a Bollywood movie. And so we had a longstanding and have had a longstanding relationship. So that's how we knew each other. And then around 2014 was when he and his manager first started educating me as to what was happening in the sort of legal landscape as far as cannabis was concerned. So that's how we know each other and, and, and how we, we, we started going down this path of, of, of building Casa Verde. So you decided to join. You said you were, you were all in. Was step number one raising the first fund? And what was that process like of raising fund number one? And how did you go about raising the fund and explaining to your limited partners what the opportunity was. Talk to us about that. 
Yeah, it was it was interesting, right? So I have a background in, in, in sales, I guess, right? I was I was on the sales and trading side in, in investment banking for 10 plus years. So part of our job was being able to really concisely, clearly tell a coherent story about a market, a, a stock, an opportunity. And so I definitely utilized some of those skills in starting to craft out what was this opportunity and why should people care? Um, the difference was I was talking to a whole new set of investors, right? Where Primarily before I was talking to large institutions, mutual funds, hedge funds, et cetera. I was now talking to friends, family, private investors, family offices. And frankly, I, I did not know a lot of these people. So to some degree, I was figuring out how to get in front of them and how to tell this story. And so it was quite a humbling experience because you can imagine that also came with a lot of knows and this sounds crazy and not for me, but it, it took a lot of persistence and perseverance. And then you also start to learn about what works, what resonates, who were the type of folks who would be interested in something like this and, and then trying to craft a way to, to get in front of those as well. So it was a mission and we really kicked off sort of in the middle of 2016 and didn't end up sort of closing the fund till the beginning of 2018. So it was a solid 18 months of, of sort of pounding the pavement. And I think one thing that's a miss, like sometimes a misperception to founders is that VCs also have to raise. So this, that what you just described around getting a lot of no's, having to craft a story, having to create the pitch, that's what founders that ultimately come to you go through. So I think that you can relate a lot more to founders on the fundraising side than some people might think. Oh my God, for sure. And it's not just that, and in many ways... I think in a lot of ways, it's a lot harder because I'm not at, at the core, of course, and I'll use banks as an example, while we were interested in, in the business you were building and, and still are, obviously there was a lot of attention being paid on you as the entrepreneur. And that's a, a big part of it as well. On our side, it's almost, it's almost only betting on, you're really only betting on me and the team I've built, right? Because I'm saying, hey, don't worry, I'm smart, give me your money and I'll do smart, intelligent things with it. Whereas at least with a business, you're saying, hey, this is the market we're attacking. We think there's a huge opportunity in staffing and HR tech services, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas we're saying, hey, we think there's so much opportunity all over the place and I'll be the right person in the middle who will be able to get into excellent businesses and you should trust us. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough sell. And so just, yeah, we very, very much relate with the, the pains that come with, with fundraising. And, and obviously it's a, it's a large part of what we do. Yeah. And I think that's a good point around if founders are taking it personally, if investors are declining their business. I mean, if, if when LPs are declining you, they're declining you uh, uh, or maybe the yeah. cannabis opportunity, but I think it's no, no, probably no, more sure. personal, right? Yeah, to some degree, right? I mean, look, at the end of the day, there's a million reasons why people say no and and everyone understands that. Bad timing, not having liquidity, blah, blah, blah. I heard every excuse you can think of. But sure, to some degree, they're saying like, yeah, I'm not sure if you're you're the person who can who can who can do this or who I want to trust with with my money. So end of so you start kicking off the fund in 2016. You close in 2018. How big was Fund One again? Remind me. It was around 43 million. So that's a pretty sub substantial first fund, especially for the cannabis industry. I mean, at the time, was that the largest fund? 
I don't I don't know for sure, but you know what was interesting was the the number for some reason was 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 out there that we wanted to raise twenty five million and, and that had even been messaged out into into the community in, in certain ways. So that was our target and our goal. And that's a that's a big number for a first time fund too, twenty five. And so we we were just I, I guess what you could say is like if you're thinking about the funnel, we we overprimed it more than we expected. Like I, I didn't know even if, if we would get there, right? That which which I thought was a pretty ambitious goal of, of of 25 million, and we ended up sort of exceeding it as we headed into the final close. And I think that had a lot to do with the market and the environment and getting lucky, sort of, of, of when we when we sort of kicked off and when we when we got things going. Right? It was right as California legalization was happening. We had we had closed some dollars early. I had made some decent bets in in businesses like Greenbits and and LeafLink and, and a few others. And so we were also selling the story. People actually understood now much more concretely, not just hey bet on me, but like here's some of the companies we like and why we're investing in them. So there was there was a there was a more definitive narrative there too, which helped us. And then also the timing was 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 pretty ideal right at the end of 2017 when we ultimately were were did our final close. So fund number one, you mentioned a couple of the companies that you made bets on. What was what was the general types of companies that you were looking to back in fund number one? And can, can you give us some specific examples of those companies and those founders and, and, and what was the, what really the strategy in, in fund one? Yeah. So, you know, we made it really clear early on that we were only going to focus in that first fund in the ancillary opportunity, right? Picks and shovels, periphery, however you want to call it, not touching the plant. We were just going to focus on those businesses. And that was for a few reasons. One, we thought LPs could digest that better. Obviously, this was still a moment where people were concerned about some of the regulatory issues with the industry and they were nervous. So it did give them a little bit of comfort to say, hey, we're just looking at the the, the ancillary portion of, of the cannabis industry. So that was one reason. The second was we we do and we still feel that that part of the segment is a lot more scalable, requires a lot less capital, and doesn't have a lot of the regulatory overhangs too. So just gives you, you know, gives you a lot more flexibility in, in, in what you can do. And so that was very clear. And I think while it precluded us from some opportunities that also could have made us money, it did allow us to really focus. And I think that was really important when it's a small team and a first fund. So that was the that was the, the sort of guardrails we we set for ourselves that we were only going to look at sort of technology and services industry businesses that support the industry. So what were some of the, what, tell us about some of the companies that, that, that came out of Fund One. I, I know you mentioned LeafLink, you mentioned Greenbits. I, who, were, who were some of the, obviously, banks, but, but who are some of the other ones that were in Fund One? We were in Dutchy as well. We were in a business called Trellis, which did inventory management, which got sold. We were in Canalysis, which was a lab testing business that also got sold. We were just looking as long as it, it fell into to the sort of non-plant touching category, mm-hmm. we could look at it. And then we started learning ourselves as to sort of what excited us and interested us, right? Um, and we learned a lot of lessons along the way as well, where in certain instances, there were exciting businesses or exciting products that looked like they had a moat or an edge or whatever else, but maybe we weren't as confident in, in the entrepreneur founding team. And sometimes we still did those deals and it would it would bite us in the ass later, right? Like that that became super clear super early on, and it's what has sort of we've continued to to, to try to make it our, our sort of guiding principle, which is like 
founder first is just it's just so so important obviously we want a great business obviously we love great margins we love recurring revenue like you like all the things that you would expect as a as an investor but given that we we spent most of our time and still do at the earliest sort of stages of a of a, a of a business's life we we just put so much more emphasis on on the entrepreneurs we're backing yeah that was a question that i was going to ask about what stage like you focus on for companies. So for most of these companies, are you first institutional check-in and and what's, and, and still to this day, what I think a big question that people ask me is they'll say, I see that Casa Verde invested in your company. How can I get Casa Verde to invest in my company? Like, I want to go deep on this, but as a, as a starting point at this point, you're now on to fund your next fund and you mm-hmm. do do some, you do do plant touching, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So so as a starting point, let's just lay the foundation for what kinds of businesses qualify for you to think about making an investment in, at, at this stage in, in, in 2023. So we are not, we're, we, we call ourselves stage agnostic because we just want to underwrite every transaction to a really, really high IRR, right? So meaning we can do inception seed stage, we can do growth stage as well. And we have, if we are confident in, in the, in, in, in sort of what we believe are the prospects of the business, and we think we can make our kind of internal threshold of return, et cetera, we, we can invest. So that's, that's the first way to look at it. So we're, we're trying not to sort of preclude ourselves from the next great opportunity, just because it may be series C versus series seed or A or, or whatever. So that's the first way to look at it. That being said, our standards for what the returns is what we would like to see are pretty high. And therefore it ends up being a lot, a lot earlier than, than a lot later. So, you know, we've invested, we, we, we co-led a $50 million transaction into, into metric out of our first fund, which was very much a sort of growth stage investment, but we saw a really exciting opportunity there and thought we could see venture like returns. And so it, it didn't matter to us. We've, we've, we've been able to get that confidence from our LPs to, to be able to do that. And so after we were able to prove some decent results in, in, in our first fund, we then set out to raise our second fund and remove those restrictions in terms of plant touching or or non-plant touching. I think we were able to say, hey, look, we understand the space well. We focus all our energy in essentially in this one vertical. We want to have the flexibility to do things outside of it as well. And so that, that doesn't mean we've completely shifted our focus. I'd still say largely what we do is technology, ancillary, sort of periphery businesses, but we've started to do more in in consumer brands. Not a lot, but but a little bit. We've also gotten a little more active in Europe where we see a large opportunity as, as they begin their sort of legalization process similar to what has, has developed here in the US over the last 10 plus years. So we just want the ability to do whatever we want, as long as we think it can yield us a really strong return. And I think after proving our ability to do that in our, in our first fund, he's gave us the flexibility to, to do more with fund two. And one, one thing that I noticed about you all, and I think that you do a great, great job on is you've done a really good job of bringing investors that were a little bit nervous about the space into the space. Like when I look at the deals that, when I look at the people that you've done deals with, you've done deals with Tiger Global, D1, Founders Fund, Lair Hippo, Thrive, and oftentimes it was their first ever cannabis deal and they came into the deal with you. How has it been working with, or how has it been attracting 
more traditional VCs, some tier one VCs in into the space? And like, how has that changed from in 2018 when you were calling these folks and getting them familiar? I feel like when we were going out to do our round, you had good relationships with folks at these funds and you were able to make the intros. Obviously that just didn't happen over overnight. You must be prioritizing building those relationships. Yeah. I think, you know, when, when I thought about like what our job is, it was, it was sort of multifold and, and different VCs have different priorities. And, and I knew that one of the things we could really be helpful with was helping to secure some of that follow on capital for our businesses as, as they matured. So really early on, even as we were raising our first fund, I made it a priority to get in front of as many of these folks as I could to educate them about the industry. And look, a lot of those conversations led nowhere, right? For the, call it 10 or so sort of large tier one folks that we've, we've helped bring into the space, not just from a from a from a VC private equity perspective, but also from a perspective, right? We, we helped bring in a couple of the large tobacco businesses into into cannabis as well. It just took a lot of 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 time to get in front of them, teach them about the space, get them comfortable, build a rapport, a trust, and then as as time developed, we we were also able to get them into certain transactions. So I, I still find it really important, and, and and I think it's an important role I have to play both for our portfolio and, and for the industry is is trying to educate as much as I can. And sometimes it's it's a lot easier than than other times. Like I said, for for the ten who've participated and, and gotten involved, there's a hundred who haven't, right? So there's still a, a long way to go. And I think the other thing that's important is that not only does it not hope haven't happen overnight, but you know, oftentimes it takes years and years to build those relationships, and they may not result in in anything for even a few more few more years later. So you can't have that mentality of hey, if if I can't convert this conversation into some actionable item item tomorrow, it's not worth it. I think it's really important to sort of build those relationships over the time, and that goes for a sort of Everyone, anyone, right? yeah. I mean, it, well, and you connected us to the lead for our Series B, who hadn't hadn't been involved in the space before. And so, I think yeah. to your point around, you have felt like it's your job to help your companies raise rounds of financing. I mean, yeah, and I don't think that's every VC's job. I think you decide sort of where can I be the most helpful. Obviously, we're in this specific vertical of cannabis. We know. The scarcity of capital is very real and attracting new dollars is, is very hard. So what can we do to help? And we can do that at scale, right? Because if I develop those relationships, I can help all my businesses get in front of those investors. And maybe it's different from, from opportunity to opportunity. And it absolutely is. So it's still really important, but there's, there's only so many hours in the day. But I still view that as like one of the things where, where we can be the most helpful so for the companies that you that you're early in, where you where you were one of the first checks in and they raised their seed round, and for the people that have gone on to raise Series A, Series B, Series C, so some have even exited. What are the most important things that founders, once they get that first check in from you or someone else at the seed stage, what needs to get done right out of the gate if you're first check in helping a company at the really early parts of its life? And what kind of advice can you give to the founders out there that maybe just closed a seed round? And they're officially on the path. Yeah. So it's funny. A, a lot of people will will sort of advise advise folks like, "Hey, cool, you raised your money. Now, like, heads down, execution. Don't think about anything else until it's time to sort of raise again." 
and, and, and while I largely agree with that, I think it's really helpful to try to map out like what is the evolution of this business going to be. And in many instances, capital is going to be needed in 24 months, 36 months, 18 months, who knows when, but you understand or at least have a good vision of like, okay, I just raised $2 million for my seed round. I'm going to be able to stretch this, I think, for this amount of time. When it's time to raise again, which unless you're building an amazingly profitable business immediately, which unbelievable, then you don't have to listen to this at all. But otherwise, you're probably are going to need to raise again. And so it's important to understand like what is going to happen between today and that point. It doesn't matter when that point is so that I have something to be able to raise on the backup, right? It's That's so critical. And I don't think people understand that. And, and oftentimes when we get in front of a company that's raised two years ago and we try to understand like what has been accomplished in from that point till now, and if it doesn't feel tangible enough and or there hasn't been real progress made, why should I have confidence that you're mm-hmm. going to be able to say what you're going to do now this time around. So I think it's really important to say and have that be a critical part of your of your narrative to say, we started on this date, we raised this much money, and then from here to there, we were able to garner these many customers, these many employees, this kind of reach, this sort of revenue base. We've learned a lot. Here's where we now want to focus our attention. And we think with X more dollars, we'll be able to achieve that. So what I mean to say is like almost like the day after you close that round, it's important to sit and say, okay, when we're back in this position in a couple of years or whenever, when we'll need to raise dollars again, we're going to need to have shown some sort of accomplishment. And what is that and work really hard towards those goals too. Obviously, you need to work hard and to build your business, build a great team, build a good culture. All those things are really critical. But you know, if if capital is going to be the lifeblood of your business, exactly, exactly. And like, think about. I mean, I think we can give a real example here. In 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 Vangst, we raised our seed round, two and a half million dollar round, and we were very clear that we're using the seed money to build Vangst Gigs, the first version of our platform, and launch our first market. And that was what we said we were going to do. And then at the end of the year, we went back out there and we said, we raised two and a half million dollars to build and launch Vanks gigs and get a meaningful amount of customers in Colorado. We did this. And now we want to raise 10 million more dollars to go and take this and do other markets. And it's just so, I mean, it was, it was successful. Curran wrote the, wrote the, the, the check for the next round. And I think that it was, I think that one thing that I see is like people aren't super clear about like what this money is going to be for. And then people feel like they're just putting their, you know what I mean? So I think that that was the advice that you gave us when we closed our seat is like, what are we doing with this? And then go do it and then come back and show that you did it. Yeah. And and, and honestly, like, and, and you're probably making it sound easier than it is, but. No, it but, was hard. It was brutal. Yeah. Was but, but that's, but that is the point. Right. And, and, and I think you, it's, it's so important to time those things well. And often though that is like not in your control, right? If you happened to raise your round at the end of 2020, and then you needed to raise again sometime in 2022, and the markets are just not there to support you, like you didn't do anything wrong. You still had a great game plan. It made a lot of sense. And so oftentimes 
there are factors just out of your control as well. And so now, obviously, you're hearing this too, Carson. Every conversation is about sustainability and efficiency and profitability and endurance. And like, these were not the same words we were using two years ago, because fundamentally... Yeah, like, we, what, what's EBITDA? That's what we years ago. <laughs> but fundamentally, that like, the the world you were living in has changed. And so it's not just... You, you have to be adaptable. You have to be able to, to, to roll with the punches and change and shift. But, but also like you have the, that environment, like it's, you have to be able to sort of play in, in whatever sandbox you find yourself in. So I think it's um, that part of it is, is really important too. And being able to, to shift course really quickly because those who retained on the same plan they had in, in our sort of boom years are now finding themselves in real trouble because you could have seen this three months out, six months out, nine months out, but maybe you're just hoping that things will sort of change on their own. And and clearly that hasn't happened. Yeah. Let's talk about this a little bit. So the environment right now that we're in, I, I mean, look, I, a year ago, we were talking about cutting burn, extending runway for as long and as far as possible. That was the conversation we were having at the Vanks board meetings. Do you think think that that, I mean, it doesn't seem like people have really taken that advice because there's a lot of folks out there that are raising right now that were well capitalized this time last year. So why do you think it took people so long to get the memo to cut their burn? And why do you think people are in some of these tight positions that they're in right now as a board member? I mean, you, you were, you were telling us a year ago, you let's cut burn, push out our runway as far as we can. And I, now we're in a good position, but it doesn't seem like a lot of people did this. And a lot of people are still not doing it. I think that's what's crazy. Um, and it's it's hard, right, to have that that conversation, which is like, hey, go really deep and hard immediately. Because even if you need to hire folks back, that's okay. You can do that. Like, And again, no one wants to do it, right? This is the worst part of the job. Like, who wants to fire? Who wants to cut? Who wants to tighten their belt? Like, no one wants to do that. And so I understand why it's challenging. But if... If it's between like Losing having your tough company. Conver- yeah, yeah. But, it, but you'd be surprised how many people don't understand that. And look, it's, it's our job as well to like stay on top of it as much as we can. But, you know, we are minority investors for the most part, have our rights, et cetera, as, as board members, but we don't run the show. So it's our job to hopefully give as much sound advice as possible. And look, it's easy to say it from our our vantage point, right? Like we don't, we're not the ones who have to do all these difficult things. So I understand why it's not, it's not just so easy for some people. But again, when you, even if you bought yourself a few months and then you're going to have to make it even harder, it's going to be even worse when you have to eventually do it, right? It's all these like same lessons you've learned your entire life. They just like reapplied in different scenarios, right? Which is like, even as a kid, right? Like if there was something wrong or you had an issue with a friend or do whatever, like, Get up, address it, squash it, move on. Instead, what happens? It festers, it grows, then there's animosity. Now you can't even talk to the person and friendship's over. And like, it's the same sort of, of, of issues you sometimes have in these businesses too. And, and oftentimes people are just, are scared to do the hard things. And, and some people are, are just built differently in, in more and more, like, like I said, it's a, it's a learning process for us. Like even as we now have been in the industry for, for seven, eight years, have worked with so many entrepreneurs, have met so many different companies, there's just a different breed of operator out there. And if you're lucky, you can, 
tire, whatever you want to call it, like sail to them and, and, and let them do what needs to be done and, and, and do things when there's tough decisions to be made. So yeah, it's, I, I wish I had a good answer for you. I can't, I don't know why some people won't do it even when they know like their, their, their fate is sealed. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. So back to, I know, and you said like, and you kind of like just double clicked on this around types of entrepreneurs that you're looking to back for folks out there that are raising that want to know like what you're looking for in founders that you would back. Like what are the characteristics you've, you've seen a lot of founders pitch you. You've seen how the companies have done. You've sat on a lot of boards. What are you looking for in your founders and how can founders improve? It's funny. Like I don't, <laughs> some degree, like what, what you're wanting me to say or what someone wants to hear is like, tell me like the things I should pretend to be in certain ways for <laughs> you to do. I, I know you're yeah. not saying that, but like, yeah. cause the reality is what you really want to find is someone just obsessed, right? Like there's no better word to describe it, which is like, this is all I think about. Like any scenario I'm in, any conversation I'm having, whether I want to or not, it somehow comes back to my business, comes back to what I can be doing better, comes back to what relationships do you have? Like, who, like, and that's me, which is, which I hate about myself too sometimes, right? Which is like, I can't have a conversation without thinking about like, oh, like, do you know anyone in my space? Do you know any investor? Like, I just can't help it. Like my, the conversation will eventually just end itself there, which is not necessarily makes for a great personal life, but it's just, I, I love, I love seeing that in, 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 in our entrepreneurs, right? Like just pure obsession with what they're building and always thinking about it and, and trying to improve and trying to grow. And, and so, uh, yeah, like I feel like at the core, that's it. There's obviously so many other things, right? Mm -hmm. You want great communication. You want someone who'll be able to can to to craft their story, sell their story, both to investors and to their employees and to the world. And there's a lot of other elements there, but but the core one, the one you can't like, can't teach, right? Yeah. You can't you can't you can't mask it. You can't pretend. It's a it's just kind of innate. And when you can find that find that entrepreneur and, and and it becomes clear from multiple conversations it's a it's usually a very good sign and but but again it's also not the only one or there's so many great examples of obsessed entrepreneurs who don't get it right on the first try second try or maybe ever but you know if I'm if I'm trying to if I'm trying to hedge against like what those potential issues are backing someone who's, who's so obsessed with, with what they're building is I think is a good one if they don't answer your WhatsApp call on Sunday morning at 7 a.m., <laughs> shouldn't invest. Okay, so on all these boards that you sit on, you've seen a lot. What are the biggest mistakes that you've seen companies make throughout this journey? I mean, I can't even imagine some of the mistakes you're going to bring up. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's just there's so many. Like, how do, where do I start? I don't know. Like, it, Okay, uh, not firing quickly enough, and that's, that's not. Great. That's a huge one, and it's back to your point around doing hard things quickly. Like yeah. you gotta. Oh my and, god. And we we've learned. You and I have learned this together. Of course. I mean, think about some of the examples yes. that we have. Yes, we have we have so many of them, but that's a that's an easy easy one in that like it applies everywhere, and it's not just about it's 
bad bad employees or bad folks in the mix can also be like a cancer to your organization. So it's like, it's not just about saving money and reducing burn. It's just, if there's someone is not a fit, you've got to do it as quickly as possible. And yes, like we've both had examples in, in different organizations where we've seen that sort of fester and it causes big issues. And the minute you do it and, and, and cut the cord, you're like, why did I not do this six months ago when I first it's brought it up It's such a relief. You? It's yeah, such a it's such a relief. it's such a relief. So yes, being able to do those things is is huge. I'd say people people get cocky really really quickly, which I find really f- funny, right? So like the ability to be like humble and on edge and like just again so concerned about your competition, even if they're not really competition, like I think is a great way to live. It just keeps be you a little paranoid on, on your toes. Always be, be a little. Always be a little paranoid. Level of paranoia. Yeah. And again, like I've seen I've seen this play out really many times where like, no, 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 they're not an issue. I'm not worried. Like they're fine. We have so much more money than them. Whatever, whatever. And I'm not sitting here saying just spend all your time obsessing about your competition. That's not it either. But I'm saying like, do not get don't be blind to what's happening around you. So those are two good examples. What what else what I mean I, I can I can literally go on two. go on forever about things no, that people shouldn't do. People sometimes get like caught up in much more about like like the prestige of of like entrepreneurship sometimes and like you just find yourself <laughs> on podcasts or on panels or on whatever and like doing much more of that than like actually spending time and growing your business because like you've convinced yourself like oh no no this is really good like yeah i don't need to be spending time like with with my team like i'm building awareness and that'll lead to this and lead to that like i've seen some of that happen over time and stuff too as i as i say this on your podcast but but no i think like it's it's important to like remember why you're doing what you're doing and what the ultimate goal is. Sometimes that gets lost in the process. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, to be clear, this podcast is very much for thanks brand awareness. <laughs> I didn't and, say uh, it. It's sorry, <laughs> but <laughs> no, no. But you know what I mean. Like, I think I know, sometimes, I like you, you meet and see certain people, and you're like, I feel like the only thing I see you doing is like on, Being on panels, panels and podcasts. Like, what, what is going on? Yeah, what is going on? All right, so what are, like the cannabis industry right now, we're having our moment of a reset. We just released our jobs report. We saw that jobs were down 2%, first time that there was more layoffs than jobs created. What in your in your plain English is going on in cannabis and how much longer are we going to all have to endure this because we all are here because we believe in the long-term opportunity of this space. We believe mm-hmm. last year there was 25 billion dollars in sales in the mm-hmm. limited in the limited legal market. And so we yeah. know that's going to go up. We know people love the product. We know of all of the benefits. We're here, we're in, but this is a longer road than all of us expected. And so from your perspective, like what's going on and how much longer do we have of this till we can start really growing again? Uh, hard to I asked say. I her in this in the board meeting today too. And so we'll see if yeah. it gives me the same answer. The same in answer. The podcast. I think it's, it's really hard to say. And I think what I said on in the board meeting was like, there's a difference between reality and perception, right? Mm-hmm. Reality is I'm sitting in Los Angeles. The market here is, is starting to turn, right? Which is that wholesale pricing for cannabis is, is up fairly significantly from where it was at the end of last year. Pricing is stabilizing and improving. So these are all really positive signals for the market. That's reality. And that's ca- reality of California. 
Unfortunately, perception drives a lot of activity as well. And the perception is that we're in great distress. And, and for sure, there are a bunch of companies in distress and that the, the space is uninvestable and regulation is never going to change and they're, you know, that people are going to lose a lot of money. And so when you have that perception coupled with we've always been a, a, an industry that, that struggled with with raising capital, right? It, it, it puts a, a dent in, in, in a lot of things and a lot of companies are going to have real trouble raising dollars, which means you can't grow and you can't build and in many instances shut down. So that's the unfortunate like reality which comes out of the, the, the perception. But I think we've seen this cycle before. This one seems to be pretty rough, but we will get out of it because like to your point, there's a massive real industry that exists. And it's not just in California, it's all over the country and there's more states legalizing and now it's a global game as well. And you have companies, countries like Germany and, 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 and Portugal and Spain and, and, and others developing Switzerland where, where things are changing. So I think it's still massively exciting, especially for those who have patience. And, and unfortunately, that most people don't have patience, which is what makes it really hard and why even the, the public stocks are, are have been damaged so so massively because you have people largely fast money, retail money, certain hedge funds who are hoping for some regulatory shift to make their dollars. But but that's not the kind of capital that you need for this space. So yeah, I think we're going to have a challenging sort of 12 to 18 months ahead of us. But but I'm I'm hopeful that in that period, people start to understand that we're, we're building a real enduring industry and, and out of this, I think you, like some great businesses will endure and some new businesses will emerge as well. So, yeah, we're still we're still here. We're still super bullish. And, and again, I think the, the word, as I'm sure I think you and I have said many times, Carson, is, is endurance, right? You, you got to get through this this period and, and things will will turn around. And I also think one of the things we talked about earlier is that there will, there will, and you just said it, there's going to be a lot of companies that unfortunately won't make it, but that's going to make the opportunity for those that do make it through that much, strong, that much stronger. So if you can make it through the next 12, 18, 24 months and... Which is why that has to be like top, top priority, priority, right? Versus like anything else. And, that, and that's what, it's unbelievable that that sometimes is so hard to, to get across to, to businesses in the space. It's... It's, it's remarkable. But yes, if, if you can and you do come out the other side, I think you're going to be in a really strong position, less competition, opportunity to consolidate. This is what happened even in traditional industries like alcohol at one point, right? In the 30s, there were thousands of businesses sort of competing for that same dollar. You saw a huge impact on pricing. You saw a bunch of companies go under and then a real consolidation at the top. And some of those businesses a lot of them are still some of the top players today, a hundred years later. So it's we're just we're we're in our nascency, and there's a lot of lot of volatility when when a, when a new market is still emerging. And so when you're talking to your LPs just about the timeline, I mean, think about I think about even like my relationship with our investors. Obviously, we understand what's going on, and you live and breathe it, and so you understand why the industry has slowed down and why the long-term opportunity is there, but there could be some bumps in the road in the short term. And I think we've all, I think we've all mentally adjusted to an endurance mindset. This is a long marathon. Maybe it's an ultra marathon. How, how do you relay that to LPs just to keep them excited about this long-term potential, but knowing that the time horizon may be a, a little bit longer than everybody's thought? 
I guess just like that, <laughs> how do you yeah. do it? I yeah. mean, you just yeah. ha- have to, to have to con- convince them and, and let them know that the, the pot of gold is still there. It's just the the rainbow's gotten longer, so it'll take a little bit more time. But honestly, there really is nothing else to say. Like, There's- if you don't believe that, then like, then you made a mistake or like, this is not the, the space for you. But that's it, right? Like, it, it really just, just comes down to that one one large macro theme. Like, do you believe this is going to be a massive industry? Like, it's already pretty large. It's grown massively from the amount of time when we first got into today. Do you think it still has legs and is, and is going to be huge and, and the world sort of view on it will continue to evolve? If you believe that, then like there is a huge opportunity here. Yes, no, we can't time it for you in one year, two year, three year sort of timeframes. But like if you're willing to make that bet, I think there's a, there's a huge reward. But if you don't believe that and there are people who don't, then you not know, for you. not for you. Not for you. And, and I, and I think one tip I would give to founders and one thing that I think has gone well for us is that things like don't go according to plan. It turns out, I mean, I just, I, I gave, I gave, I just, I gave the story about us going from seed to series A. I mean, all things considered that went according to plan, but in the bank's journey, there's been plenty of things that have not gone according to plan. And in my experience being like upfront with your board members and like overly honest and transparent has, I think, served me well and I think made us have a stronger relationship in the end. And so for founders that find themselves in a position where like shit's hitting the fan from your perspective as a board member, like what, what do they like? I I feel like founders need to hear that it's need, you need to be real with people. For sure. And at the end of the day, like we're here to help because like we have a vested interest in your success. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like for fun, right? So if you don't or you keep your investors in the dark or it's only revealed at the board meeting or there's no communication in between, like maybe you don't need it and that's fine. And and that's you're you're built to succeed without any of that. But like our whole the, the whole mantra is here is, is to be here to help. So if it's for a relationship or an introduction or an opportunity to talk through something or go like I it's it's amazing that more people don't take advantage of that because not not only is it hopefully helpful to you, but yes, when then the the time comes that something has gone wrong, it's not coming at us all at once, right? Like this has been a natural progression when you when you ring the alarm three months ago to say, hey, it feels like things are slowing down. Like it feels like we we're we're not seeing enough of this or enough of that. Letting you know now, and so when you eventually have to deal with those realities, not only are your board members prepared, but hopefully have been able to think about like how to help you in in that in that moment. So yeah, I'd say like communication and transparency is just. It ultimately will be like your friend. But again, like we talked about, like most people find it hard to have hard conversations. But so I like the, think the, it makes it not as hard. Like, of course, like, like the, the, the line that I always tell people is like, keep people along for the ride. Like I, I've kind of shifted my mentality to think about our investors as just business partners. Of course, they invested money. But like you said, you're a minority owner. And so yeah. like, just think about each other as partners. And just like I would, I don't have a co-founder, but if I did, and I left a big sales meeting and I was super pumped, I would fire off a text, just closed, insert MSO. If a customer yeah. also calls you and fires you, it's like, oh my God, like just lost this customer. Here's what we're going to do about it. I've kind of adopted that style. And maybe 
some people have told me like maybe you communicate a little bit too much with your investors, but frankly, it makes the board meeting so much easier because you know exactly what's going on. And then we're just like digging into the real meat of things and there's no shock. So I personally would tell founders, bring your investors along for the ride. And also it makes them so much more willing to help out. Like if they feel included, like it serves you in the end, like I'm top of mind. If I'm sending texts, sending emails, I'm top of mind. And, and if you, and if you're not doing that and then the next, time we're talking is like hey we need a bridge round like we're not gonna make it something's happening like that's really frustrating right like you're not you why didn't we not know this earlier like why hasn't this been something you would tell us like the minute things started happening why is this only like and it's incredible i'll 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 never really fully understand it i mean i guess i get it right like if when I many times had like a bad grade and didn't want to show like my parents or something like that. Like I, but like, this is just so different, different right? Like, like I said, think about it as your, as your, rather than thinking about it as your parent, think about it as yeah. your friend or brother or sister. You know what I mean? Like tell them about the bad score. Like I, 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 yeah, I, I, I sorry, go, go ahead. I cut you off. But I, I really think that that's, especially in this environment, I've just heard a founder saying, we've got three months of cash and we got to call our board and our investors and the people have no clue. And it's like, I feel yeah. like that's not the right approach here. Yeah. And honestly, like, that's why for certain, certain folks, they, they take the position of like, I'm not going to be on the board because I don't want a founder or entrepreneur to feel like they can, they have to hide anything from me because I may vote against something or, or negatively impact them in that way. And it's a, and it's a weird one, right? Because obviously we want to be as involved as possible. We want to be as, we want to have as many rights as well, like in, in case these things happen or whatever. But at the same time, like we, we don't want to be in a situation where because we're a board member, we're now getting less information, right? Like it's kind of crazy. So it, it, look, there's an onus on us to, to make sure relationships with, with our founders are, 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 as as jovial and open and transparent as well and so that there's not a, a fear associated with it and so i and think that was, that's important for vcs too and that was a, the i know we're, we're coming up on the hour here but that was a piece that i another piece that i wanted to make is like i think is like investing in relationships with your investors the same that you would invest in relationships with your teammates or anybody else because you ultimately work together for a long time i feel like my fiance and your wife know each other we hang out like making that time commitment to get to know each other as people feel like you do that with your founders and I try to do that with anybody that would invest in our company I mean our my company's like the most important thing to me so why would I not want to get to know the people that also own it with me now but I also wanted to give that tip to people out there is like make the time to build the relationship with your investors yeah and and, and again like building relationship can mean a lot of different things it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be that level of, of tightness if, if, you know, you're uncomfortable, or you want to keep some separation. But I think the point is that like, it's important to get to know each other. And when you have that relationship, you can do more together. And there's more willingness on both parts to do things for, for the other party and, and be helpful. And I think that's what it was like in my, in my trading and, and, and other jobs as well, right? Like the, the ability to do the most for your clients is when you're able to develop that relationship and they feel comfortable to pick up the phone and say, hey, this is happening. Can you help me? Or this is wrong or, or whatever else. So yeah, at the end of the day, like that's still a core, core part of of our function is, is, is developing and building great relationships, not just with our entrepreneurs and LPs, but also with the industry and service providers and other sources of capital. At the end of the day, it's it's still a big relationship game. 
Well, Kerr, my, my last question for you is what, what opportunity in cannabis in the next 24 months are you most excited about? Like what really gets you the most excited to get out of bed and go into work every single day that, 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 that's on the horizon in the next 24 months? I'm getting excited that our industry is getting, as it matures, is getting a lot more sophisticated. And so what I'm, what I'm seeing is the CMO of, of the MSO or the CFO and financial team, or even those in charge of cultivation and manufacturing, there's a lot more needed now to, to be competitive in this industry. And that calls for more unique technology to surface, to service it. So it's really fun for me to see the industry mature and understand what else is going to be needed and then getting to meet and, and work with those businesses and potentially invest where, where we see those, those needs being being addressed. So for me, that's, that's a really fun part of it to, to understand and see as we get in your, you're at the center of it, right? Like of bringing so many, so much great talent to the cannabis industry. But when you bring someone in who's had all these unlimited resources, maybe if they're coming from traditional CPG or alcohol, and now they're getting ported into cannabis, there are things they need to operate the most efficiently and tools that are specific to cannabis that, that in many ways don't exist yet. So to work with them, spend time with those folks, understands what's, what's needed. And in some cases, being involved in building those, those companies, it's really fun. Okay, Karen. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Any, any plans for 420 today? It is four o'clock on 420 in Los Angeles. So still have a few more hours of, of work to do. But then, yeah, there's a few things we'll, we'll hit up in the evening. Well, I think Kelsey, our, our colleague, is out there. So maybe I'll run into her tonight. Oh, really? All right. I, mean, I, I, think, I think she may have even texted me. I need to yeah, I think see. she said she was going to text you. Okay, I'll hit her up. All right. Sounds good, Karen. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Carson. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on Podcon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out.